Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. It's pretty catchy. You can tell that music is like scientifically designed to be catchy. You can try to be a purist and you can try to hate it, but science has stepped in. Much like the chemical factories that design the smells and tastes that go into fast food to make us want it, there must be factories somewhere in the world designing and crafting crafting scientifically proven musical beats yeah, and, yes. and and all the little elements that that's right. all the hot pop artists need, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly how it works and it's um it's frustrating you think, because you try to be above it all, but you can't be because of science. Do you think you can the the people who work in the factory, do you think they go home with those tunes in their head every day? Oh, that must be a curse. Yeah. That is a curse. It is. Oh. Have you seen that thing that's floating around? It's a it's a one of those viral nonsense Spaceship? things about uh, Thor and science. I have screenshots of It's just screenshot. It's really very funny. Um it's I'm I'm looking for it right now because it's very funny. It's like all um it it's all like uh, uh screenshots of what's her name? What's her name? Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman, and and uh, you know all the little character bubbles, the vo- the speech bubbles over her, like science. Oh my gosh, science, science. And then they came from another science, and then it cuts to you like shots of her in, uh, you know, when <laughs> Thor's Thor's house. Asgard. And <laughs> Asgard says, "Oh my gosh, science everywhere. Oh my god, science." So funny. I have to find it. I don't think you have to. I think that was actually probably better. Oh, my gosh. Science. (laughs) Nothing like having you deliver it. (laughs) Make my day. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Science everywhere. (laughs) Uh, Have you been, my good friend? How are you? Feeling good? Uh, feeling good. You I know what you, did I, you get you stung know, by a bee? Yeah, I hear that? I, yeah, I did. I I actually purposefully got stung by a bee today. You did not. Why would you do that, did, dummy? Well, today was the test sting, just to make sure that I don't have a horrible allergy that will kill me. <laughs> Wait a minute. So you didn't know this? You don't know if you have an allergy? No, I, I didn't think I did. I've been stung before, and I've never had reactions. So why why, why did you decide to go all in this time? You know, why not? <laughs> was it some sort of a staged thing? Like, did they? Did you go to a place where they said, "Here, bee sting"? No, actually, my uh, my boss's son has a beehive. Like, he you know uses it to make honey and 
pollinate his garden and, and all of that. And I was talking to him about it and about my elbow because I have tendonitis that really flares up and it drives me nuts. So he said, oh, have you ever tried this? And I was like, no, that sounds crazy. <laughs> why, why would one do this? <laughs> That's right. He said, you should try it. And I looked it up and sure enough, it's a thing. And I'm like, well, yeah, why not? I'll give it a try. And so he just dropped by work. I was sitting there working. And he I brought you a bee. Brought me a, a jar of, actually, he brought three bees, but one, you know, just making sure just in case I needed uh, an extra or one died on its way or got away or whatever. And then he stung me. And So I, had, I need to hear more about that. So they put the, he just put the bee on you? Yeah, he picks it up with a tweezer and, and he holds like, it on me and may, and basically kind of you know just just kind of pisses the it bee gets off. Gets mad, yeah. It and gets the bee stings mad. me, and then then of course once the bee uses its stinger, it dies because when it pulls yeah. away, it's all of its innards rip out with the stinger. So <laughs> so it pumps its poison into you, and then yeah, you yeah. pull the stinger out, and then you wait, and then you know if it works or if I'm not allergic, then I. Like every you know week or two, I get four or five stings in in my elbow, and the idea is that the toxins get pumped in there, and all my white blood cells rush to repair or get rid of the poison. And while they're there, they happen to kind of work on everything else. So, so this is a therapeutic stinging, is what it you're is. saying. It is. Wow. I like a little pain with my healing. What that's. that's what it is. Did you did he bring over any, you know, leeches or <laughs> what was that thing they did in the in the olden days where they would like lay you down and they would heat up little glass jars yeah, and they put, put them a, on your back to yeah. suck the toxins out? Yeah, they yeah, that's right. They uh, I don't know why they one would do that, but th that was done. That was the thing that was done. Mhm. Mm now, all sorts of fun things. Yes. Now, I, I'm going to tell you, uh, now that you've had that, I have found the, the thing, The Adventures of Jane and Science. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm going to post it. I'm going to post it on the blog because it's so brilliant. It is so brilliant. Wow, so much science. I'm having a science gasm. <laughs> oh, <man>. uh, <laughs> She'd be really into this this bee stinging science because of science. Because it's science. What light through yonder right. window? Science. <laughs> oh, that's good. oh, it's so good. All right, so um, welcome to the next real everybody. The next real science. <laughs> uh, this has been a just a real treat bringing you this uh, little bit of bee uh, uh, the 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 wonders of bee science. Apotherapy is what it's called. That is not true. It is. Apotherapy? It is. That has nothing to do with bees. It's biotherapy. That's what it should be. And it should have apostrophes. No, because biotherapy sounds like it relates to bio and stress sweat. No, and I'd but, rather no. not have therapy. <laughs> You're wrong because sweat. of the, I. you didn't bio. catch. I said with an apostrophe. That means it's uh, Irish science. <laughs> it's biotherapy. <laughs> Yeah, it's all about the emphasis. Faith and Begora. Okay, uh, so this is The Next Reel. You can find us at thenextreel.com. You can join the conversation at facebook.com slash thenextreel or twitter.com slash thenextreel or uh, where else? Uh, Instagram now, right? Are you still doing yeah. that or have you given it up? No, no. I've only done it you know, three times so far. Hey. Three, three weeks. Three for the money. 
Yeah. Uh, you should play, I, I, play the little, game. Yeah, a little weekly. <laughs> it's it's not really much of a game if you listen to the show when we're you know when it's live <laughs> because <laughs> because you know when you we're going to record. It's yeah. fun. It it's is fun. That's good. I'm glad. And so you can find it there. You can find us also. The, this is the the real important stuff. Is you uh, head over to. Uh, flickcharts.com slash the next reel or letterboxd.com slash the next reel. That's where our lists of movies and our, our overall top uh, uh, top ranking list, you can catch up with us there and join us and share your lists. And we love to, to hear about that. Um, and subscribe on iTunes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss a single episode of the show. You'd think we haven't done this 98 times. <laughs> that's right. Every week <laughs> it's just a kind of a gamble that we'll get it all in. That's right. Leave us a comment, yada, yada, yada. yeah, yeah. yeah. Con- there. There's a good contact page. Do that. Uh, we spoil movies heavily, even movies that are uh, really, really old and and really, really new. We do. We spoil them all. That's what we do here. And so please, uh, please definitely uh, step away from your audio device of choice and see the movie if you don't want to be spoiled. Spoiling begins almost immediately after the B science. That's right. That's our introduction. There we go. Um, shall we do trailers? Let's talk about trailers. Let's. Who's first? Mm. I think I'm going first this okay. week. Okay. All right. Do it. So my trailer this week is All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, which yeah. on the surface level sounds like a nice little you know, a romantic drama, kind of a, a you know, one of those uh, nostalgic looks back on, on high school and the girl that everybody loved or something like that. But no, it's actually another horror film. And it actually, uh, it looks like an interesting film. And the way they set it up is actually kind of, it's almost like that retro high schoolers, this girl who's the good girl, everybody wants to date her, but no one, but she kind of stays away from everybody, but she agrees to go to this weekend party and then all of a sudden something happens and things go bad at this party as uh, like some killer starts picking off these high school kids one at a time. So you're, so, you're bullish on this movie. I'm not. I, well, I am. I am. I am. I, I, I'm excited about it. I think it looks interesting. The thing about this film is, and I don't know really how good it's going to be or not, but the thing that I find interesting about this film is this film was made in 2006. This film has been sitting on the shelves for seven years now. It, it premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2006. Uh, TIFF is about to happen right now. So, uh, so it, literally, it was seven years ago. And what happened was, this was a huge hit at the festival uh, back in uh, 2006. The Weinsteins picked it up. They had a big bidding war for this movie, paid $3.5 million to distribute it. And then they did a test screening of it, and the audience didn't connect with it at all. They didn't get the tone of it. And so the Weinsteins weren't sure what to do with it. They were going to try to do... They, the Weinsteins really liked it. They thought it was a really intelligent horror film, and they wanted to do kind of a limited release where it would release in just a few theaters here or there and kind of build word of mouth. Um, there was, I guess, some some arguments about that. And so it ended up getting sold to a different company. They, uh, shortly after they bought it, they basically collapsed. And this film has been kind of floundering in legal battles all the way up until just recently when the Weinstein's uh, video on demand division actually finally 
managed to get the rights. And Jonathan Levine, who uh, who directed it, it was his first film he directed back in 2006. He since has done um, Warm Bodies, 50-50, The Wackness. So he's definitely a director that we've all heard of now. But this at the time was his first uh, feature film debut. Uh, along with an actress at the time who had not been heard of yet, Amber Heard, who we've all heard of now. And so now it's finally getting its release through Video On Demand, which actually is coming out uh, today, September 6th. And then it's actually going to get a limited theatrical release starting uh, October 11th. Okay. So I was interested in this because of Warm Bodies. Right? I mean, that's yeah. that's why I kind of got excited about it. But this, the trailer itself didn't strike me as anything particularly interesting and i was worried about all of the buzz uh making it something you know oh oh my gosh here are two people who liked this film but everybody else didn't get it it sounds a little bit like you're next well and i that you know I and the two people i'm mentioning that. are you know you and your and your little friend <laughs> me and and me in <laughs> me and, me and myself well, no, here's the thing. I don't know if it's going to be good or not, but I am curious to see it because it did get a lot of buzz at, at TIFF, just like your next two years ago. This <laughs> see? Not, make, not helping I your know. case. I'm not helping my case at all, am I? But I think it looks like an interesting horror film. The, the look of it, I, I love the look of it. It's got kind of a, a retro look. So it actually doesn't, even though it was filmed seven years ago, it doesn't look dated because it just has this perpetual retro look and uh, i don't know i'm excited to see it i think there will be something interesting to see in it and uh, if nothing else this is where you know it's, it's you know the starting point for jonathan levine this is where he got it all started so i am curious to see uh to see it and to see how uh how it does i'm curious too i'll i'll go on the record and be curious about that and um uh, yeah i'm excited about it. i like you know i like it because it's a clever it, it's a clever title Sounds like a song. It, it does sound like a song. And it actually reminds me of kind of some of those 70s horror films that had really long titles, you know, so. Right, right. That's good. So, yeah, that's my trailer. All right. Uh, my trailer is not that. What am I no. doing for a trailer? I'm doing David O. Russell's new one. Have you seen American this trailer? Hustle. Oh, yeah. Just now? Did you see it? This is Christian Bale, Amy Adams, uh, writer, uh, written by uh, Eric Singer and David O. Russell. Uh, also stars Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Bradley Cooper, Robert De Niro, Jeremy Renner, Jack Houston, Louis C.K., briefly, Michael Pena, Elizabeth Rom, Alessandro Nivola. This is a, a fantastic cast, and uh, the, the trailer, uh, it just makes me happy. It's kind of a weird... Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a heist kind of a heist film. It's a well, it's a con film, and yeah. uh, uh, it is a uh, it, it looks like a really interesting period uh, piece. Takes place in the seventies, uh, and uh, it look. I mean, just the characters look fantastic. It's great to see them in this sort of vibe. I I'm, you know, I, I like a, a lot of David O. Russell's stuff. Uh, there's also a lot I feel like I don't get, mm-hmm. and so I'm I'm worried because you know I I look at Silver Linings Playbook, I look at the Fighter, and and those are fantastic, and I look at I Heart Huckabees, and I think what, and then mm-hmm. Three Kings, and I love it, and then Flirting with Disaster, huh? <laughs> uh, and and so I'm sort of hot and cold on David O. Russell's stuff, but I'm I definitely am, am bullish on this film. It looks like enough of a quirky character kind of uh, crime uh, uh, film that 
uh, I, I think it's got a lot of uh, it's got a lot going for it. So I'm excited about it. Well, it doesn't look at all in the I Heart Huckabees. No, vein. not at all. It completely looks more like the fighter. You know, yeah. just kind of period. Uh, interesting story with really interesting characters. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think so, too. I, I, that's one of the reasons. There are a couple of these movies, that, these sort of 70s period films that are, are out right now. I mean, we haven't talked anything about Lovelace, for example, um, which is one that I am absolutely fascinated to see, and I have not seen it yet, but I, I from what I hear, the way they s- just structured the film. Have you heard about this? I haven't heard how they've structured. It hasn't really been on my radar as something. Well, it I'm will be now. Get ready. Pursuing. Get ready. Are you ready? I, I'm ready. The first half of the film, the entire first half of the film. This is again according to, you know, them who know. Uh, the entire first half of the film is the happy version of Linda Lovelace's story in the porn industry, as is por- as is sort of portrayed by the the before now but the media that it's this is what everybody thinks it's like in the porn industry and linda lovelace leading up to deep throat and all of those things and then it turns halfway through the film and i apparently it goes back to the beginning of the story and you see her in you know more of her experience and it is very dark and it it retells the story as it you know quote happened and hmm. uh, and I find that fascinating. That is a dramatic structure that I'm really interested in seeing. I think it, it sounds really interesting. And so uh, that's another one that um, that's on my list. I, I you know, it, it's not my trailer, but it's there. Well, it you know it, you're right in the in the vein of interesting looking period films. It does have an interesting vibe. I I'll be curious to see. How it does. I haven't heard great things about it, but about, you're talking about Lovelace or Hustle, right? Now? About Lovelace. Yeah. About Lovelace. Yeah. No, um, I haven't. Although, although you're right, the, the you know the structure does sound like something that uh, would be at least interesting to see, even if it even if it doesn't end up working. Right. 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 That's it. That's it. Let's talk about our film. Let's. Shall we? Tonight we are continuing our nearly never-ending series of the. <laughs> The, the drama of the Brothers Cohen with 1996 crime film Fargo. Once upon a time. Looks like she's going to turn cold tomorrow. Yeah, you got that right. There was a salesman called Jerry Lundergaard. Okay, real good. Who always dreamt of striking it rich. Wait, have you had a chance to think about that deal I was talking about, those 40 acres there in Wyzetta? Jerry, we're not going to just give you $750,000. No, no, but see, I... (laughs) So, we all set on this thing, then? You want your own wife kidnapped. You know what I love so much about this movie is the, uh, you know, there's some really great poster artwork, but the one that I like the most, which I think really sets the tone for what, what uh, you know, my understanding is the, the tone that the Coen brothers were trying to establish here is the, the poster that is Needlepoint. That has long been one of my favorite movie posters. I think it's an ingenious way to depict a story of crime. And just the, the tagline on it also, you know, A Tale of Homespun Murder, it just fits so well with everything about this film. People in a small town in Minnesota, in a Minnesota small town, where everybody kind of has this unwritten rule of that Minnesota nice that they call it, you know, mm-hmm. where everybody is just is always nice to each other and the way they talk is nice and everything is nice. Putting all that and, and putting this horrific crime story into that world. 
I think that poster defines it so well. Needlepoint, blood in the snow. <laughs> it is. It's it's like you know the the sweater's already red, so they can't do blood as blood. So the it's kind of a taupe. The blood is kind of a taupe, and yeah. it's, it just looks kind of dirty on the nice clean white yarn. And the overturned car in the background is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, I love that, and I think it really sets up that that um, uh, the vibe that uh, you know one uh, critic whose name suddenly I can't find said this is like the the dark side of a prairie home companion. Yeah, and that's really what it is. This is a a um, this is a crime story. It's it it's sort of um, it it's very much got a blood simple vibe to it. Uh, with the uh, you know that same sort of you know confused criminal uh, relationship, and uh, it is told then in the snow. Yeah, yeah, and it even goes so far as to have a scene that it it never struck me until watching it this time. The moment when there's the dead cop on the side of the road. This is driving at night, and he's trying to move it off the road. Uh, and another car is coming. It never struck me until watching this time that that was straight out of Blood Simple. It was yeah. the exact same scene, except in Blood Simple, he manages to prop him up, and of course, he's not quite dead, and so he vomits blood all over his back and all that <laughs> horrible stuff. One of the uh, many in, vomits of Blood Simple. Yes, that's right. In this particular case, he doesn't manage to get the cop out of the way. The car is approaching much too quickly, and of course, it's got that beautiful, uh, slow shot of the two in the car as they basically witness the entire crime yeah. and then speed off. <laughs> well, and that's the that's one of the sort of legendary clips from this film is the slow motion head turn of Peter Stormare uh, as he recognizes the fact that he has been recognized. Mm-hmm. Which is which is you see that and you're like I've seen that a thousand times. It's in every Coen Brothers retrospective. Uh, and and it's it's funny that it's from this sequence that is essentially a repeat of a sequence from Blood Simple. Yeah, and they even repeat it in this because you get the exact same thing when uh, Jerry is uh, driving by the uh, the, the um, airport um, booth at, later in the film, and he drives by and he looks at the dead body in the booth, and it's got that other brilliant shot of Jerry as he kind of looks over and sees the dead body in the booth. Right. And, and you got the same thing in Barton Fink when he looks out the door <laughs> and you see him looking down the hallway. So it definitely, I've never really caught on to that, but it is uh, does seem to be quite a little theme of, of their uh, characters kind of looking and watching as the camera moves by. Uh, before we dig too too deep into, uh, I, I want to talk more about the setting and and uh, the, kind of the role Minnesota plays into this. But the first thing I think we need to get, I need to get off my chest is, is this thing fact or fiction? Because, and I'm going to tell you why. Here's what I know. I know that a lot of people, uh, in the beginning, it says it's based on a true story, right? Uh, and then, at the very, very end, it says nobody, nothing in here has been, um, you know, there's no, you know, it does the thing, right? It says no, no, uh, no characters are characters based on, are, are based on a real life, are all fictitious, right? And so, you know, Snopes.com, this is even debunked on Snopes.com, right? That uh, says this is, you know, the Coens are all about uh, finding their, um, you know, put, putting these little jokes in. 
and there is a, another quote from a, another a reporter in Minnesota. It says, however, repeated efforts by the Minnesota media to unearth any vaguely similar, any even vaguely similar real-life case have proved entirely unsuccessful, and suspicions that this could be another coy artifice from the Coen brothers are heightened by Ethan Coen's introduction to the published screenplay of Fargo, which concludes that the movie aims to be homey and exotic and pretends to be true. And then I'm watching this 18-minute conversation uh, between my dear friend Charlie Rose Mm -hmm. and the Coen brothers and Francis McDormand, and he says, is it true? And Ethan Coen says, yes, it is true. The characters are made up, but the story is true. Right. I don't know who to believe. (laughs) It's not easy to know who to believe when it comes to the Coen brothers because they are um, little jokesters. And I think a lot of the stuff they say is they they set up these things. I I think the Charlie Rose interview, this is my theory. When you put it all in chronological order, the Charlie Rose interview happened at the time they were doing press for the film. Exactly. I don't don't think that they were admitting that it was uh, all false at that point. I think, according to... Well, their the, first, and this is their first answer, is a cheeky answer. He says, who says? They say, yeah. is it true? Or they, this movie is, uh, I can't remember how Charlie Rose put it, but something that, that uh, the answer between the, both the Coens right. looked up and says, says who? You know, right. like, of course it's yeah. true. <laughs> right. It's, it, supposedly, they did pull pieces of these actual stories together. I mean, I guess what they're saying is, you know, one... You can uh, use whatever you want from wherever you want, and it creates its own truth. I, you know, I don't know. I, it's, 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 it's their own take on what is true, I guess. Supposedly, they did take some, some cases from, or some elements of everything that happened from just cases that happened all over the place, like the, the wood chipper uh, incident supposedly happened in 1986 some... Buddy, uh, a woman uh, was murdered by her husband in Connecticut and got rid of her through a wood chipper. Mm-hmm. So it's so they're not specifically focusing on Minnesota. As for the rest of it, I you know it's probably somebody probably stole some money somewhere. Somebody probably faked a kidnapping, and they pull all these little pieces and that they've probably just heard on the news. And you know they what I heard long ago was oh their their grandmother had told them a story about some hidden money buried in the snow somewhere. So they probably pull all these elements and create their own truth that becomes true because it's the story that they're telling. That's my take on the whole thing. It's kind of like, you know, they 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 pulled so many things together that suddenly they it becomes true to them. Exactly. Right. That's right. That uh, okay. So it's hypnotically true, aspirationally true. Yes. Well, and if you look at any film or any story, the the elements within that story are true within the context of the story. So, <laughs> see how subversive that is. <laughs> that is totally subversive. Yeah. And you're a liar, is what you're saying. <laughs> In other words, Smaug is real. <laughs> Hobbits are really short. <laughs> right? This is all true. It's all true. All right. They're all true stories. All right. So, now, back to the movie. So, back to the movie. Uh, you know, I, the, the thing that sticks out to me in terms of, a you know, where, where this film does a one up on the general crime caper that was Blood Simple is introducing a new character, which is the 
the environment, the setting. How would you say Minnesota, in this case, uh, plays uh, a, a role in the importance of this film? Well, you know, I... The Coens, this is, it is a crime story like any other crime story, but like I was saying earlier, by putting it in Minnesota, where, which is where they're from, they kind of grew up in this environment with all the snow, and it, you know, they, they wanted to shoot here specifically for a lot of those reasons. It does add where you can have this you know, amazing amount of this kind of Swedish, Norwegian, this Nordic heritage, and you have uh, people with these, these crazy accents, albeit maybe some of them are a little over the top. But um, it, it's an element that you don't see in films very often. And by putting a story in this different world, it really casts a spell on us watching a horrific crime story that, I mean, put this in L.A., it becomes a lot less interesting. We've seen that world you know, how many times in films? Countless to the point where it's just not that interesting anymore. By putting it in a world where we're interacting with characters that don't ever see this type of story, it all of a sudden introduces a whole new layer to the story. And it, yeah, I, it, it, and it ends up embodying this additional element to the story where it's just everything is just this it's frozen it's almost like this whole thing is frozen in time and we are witnessing you know a crime of i guess you could almost say of modern sensibilities in in this frozen period that seems like it's from ages ago yeah no i, I that i i absolutely agree with that i think the um uh i i think the uh, you see that play out when, uh, you know, she goes to the Twin Cities and yeah. everything sort of speeds up. You know, right. we have the, the it, it, everything gets, uh, kind of comes up to normal speed. But as soon as she goes back to Brainerd, uh, we get a sense that, uh, that rules change. And, and not only do kind of rules of the universe change, but rules of, uh, of language, it's like they 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 speak a different language that we are sort of miraculously introduced to and understand, but but not quite, um, and that makes it uh, sort of more of a uh, uh, more of a fantasy or a fable, a fairy tale, uh, and and I think that uh, the cold and the way these characters interact with it and the normalcy with which they treat the cold, you know, I mean, it's, I, I found myself, you know, really fascinated by how they interact with the implements of cold, um, you know, jackets and coats and boots and things um, are, it, it's just sort of a magical process watching them gear up to go in and outside. And, and there is a sequence when uh, 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 Marge goes to see uh, uh, Jerry in, and, and question him about the cars and say, you know, when is the last time you did an inventory? And he freaks out. He gets all upset. The pressure is rising on him, and this is this is where he blows off his steam. And he does a, a dance with his jacket and hat to put it on as he's doing this preening kind of show for her to go out and do his disgruntled uh, inventory while she sits there and waits. And I found myself really mesmerized by what is required to live in this environment. And I think that really just sort of changes the dynamic of the, of the drama. Oh yeah, absolutely. It slows you down. It makes it harder to work. 
uh, it makes it harder to do anything. I mean, you really have to be motivated to to step out into and do these things, you know. Right. And you and you get a feel for that when you see the uh, you know the the way uh, Marge, for example, uh, relates with the cold, and uh, the way the the criminals relate to the cold, who are not obviously from there. They yeah. still sort of get it, uh, but but you can tell they're kind of, it's a fish out of water kind of a, a story for them too. Yeah, and Marge clearly is you know much more at home in it, even though. She has problems with it. Prowler needs a jump, being a, a mm-hmm. perfect example. But, you know, she takes it in stride, and it's just another part of life. Yeah, that's just part of, of normalcy and, and being pregnant in, in that kind of universe. Yeah. Uh, which I, I think was uh, adds an extra—that sort of, that's that, that becomes the comedic element, I think, for me, that, you know, every time we turn around, there's something related to her being the chief of police and pregnant uh, in this, this universe that is— I mean, I, that is fantastically funny. Yeah. Uh, well, leave it to the Coens to create interesting characters. Well, and, you know, I think her her role with her husband. Yeah. Uh, who, who she apparently doesn't know is actually the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> <laughs> hey, good, that's good. <laughs> That's very good. This is where he went. He moved off to to uh, Brainerd, right? <laughs> Marry the police chief. Who'd have thought? Nobody's wow. gonna look there. Good old John Carroll Lynch. That's too funny. Yeah. We uh we we don't meet the uh we don't meet the chief until about a half hour into the uh into the film. Thirty two minutes into the film. But when we do, we see, I, I think, an interest, a really interesting relationship between these two people. And it is played off as something that is completely normal. Uh, and I, I don't know that it's necessarily celebrated enough just how normal they play it in, in this film. Their relationship is, a, is um, it's an interesting role reversal to me. That Go ahead. It is, no, it is. It's, it's a fascinating fascinating role reversal where he's the one who they talked about kind of their backstory and how he at one point had also worked for the police department but she is the one who ended up getting promoted to chief and he you know didn't feel that it was appropriate to keep working there while she was the chief so he stepped down and and he was able to while she's chief he's now able to spend his time focusing on his on his art doing his bird art and uh, submitting it for a postage stamp (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, getting it on the postage stamps and stuff. And so, yeah, it's, it is a really interesting uh, twist where she is the one who's going out pregnant to stop crime. And he's the one um, who's definitely much bigger. And, uh, but he's the one sitting at home painting and going ice fishing. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a totally different life. And, that, and it's so natural for her to say, oh, I got to stop at the, at the store because I've got to pick up some worms. Yeah, I got to pick up some night crawlers. Night crawlers for Norm, uh, (laughs) which is which is just sort of a normal thing, and I think that's the that's the part that I find so kind of brilliant about the relationship and the way we're introduced to these characters is through visually through his work, not hers. Uh, You know, it 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 at at that thirty two minute mark, we get a a slow fade in on a mallard duck painting. Yeah, Canadian goose, I believe. Canadian goose, and then it pulls back, and there's a model of a duck, and there it kind of goes over all of the implements of of art. And then we cross the room in one kind of long pan to see her kind of, it's the middle of the night and she's 
sleeping, she wakes up to a phone call. And, and so we're introduced to this relationship of them through, of theirs through the, the domestic art, uh, of, of Norm. And, and, uh, I, I love that it adds that sort of extra celebration to this role reversal in a way that is really benign to the, ultimately to the story, but they add a lot to it by, by really focusing on the art in, in that piece. Yeah, and it's just, it enhances that lifestyle that we're experiencing here in, in small town uh, mm-hmm. North Dakota. Right. So. All right, I've been talking too much. What's your, it's your turn. The, you know, the interesting thing about how, the way this story is structured is really at the beginning of the film, it starts with us meeting Jerry Lundegaard and he's going to meet uh, Carl Showalter and Gare Grimsrud, the two uh, kidnappers who are going to kidnap his wife, and he you know, kind of sets up this whole story. The, the interesting element of that structure is by putting the story in Jerry's shoes, and now we're watching Jerry as he's essentially guiding the story and trying to create this whole story. It's essentially Jerry's story that we're watching. And what happens when we have Jerry, this criminal, he ends up being the protagonist of the story in in a large sense because he's the one kind of guiding the story. And so we have half hour in when we have um, Marge introduced. Yeah, the whole tone of the story, of the the whole, uh, the, the entire story pivots. And she ends up becoming, in a way... And it's it's interesting, the structure. She ends up becoming kind of the antagonist of of the story. She's the one who is trying to stop him from this crime and solve this whole whole story of murder that's going on in Brainerd and and just unraveling this crazy, crazy thing that Jerry Lundegaard has, has basically set into motion. And... The, I think it's just interesting the way that you can structure a story where your protagonist is not necessarily a good person and is essentially like just leading the story into just horrific territory. And your antagonist is really just trying to stop the protagonist. It doesn't mean the antagonist is a bad character. It just means they're trying to stop the protagonist who is basically guiding your story. And so you have your antagonist come in. Marge Gunderson, who really is trying to stop. And in a way, if you look at it through that window, it's almost like this this story, because it doesn't work out for the protagonist, he's not able to pull off this crime and get all this money from his uh, father-in-law and, and get his wife back and, and be happy. It's, it's, it's really kind of a, a uh, not a happy ending for, for the protagonist. And so in a way, it's like, it's this, as far as the protagonist is concerned, it's a very downer ending and our antagonist wins. If you put that story in Star Wars or something like that, it's not the story that we want to see. And so it's really interesting the way that they've switched the roles because she comes in so late in the film. It's just interesting the way that those roles end up getting switched and we end up rooting for our antagonist as the story progresses and we want to see her beat and and solve this mystery that this protagonist has has set into place and i think a lot of that comes from this this amazing small town homegrown vibe that marge and norm son of a gunderson have and this this uh just this vibe that they have of this minnesota nice 
Wow, that is uh, that's a really interesting way to to frame it because I I did not look at it that way. I I was not looking at it from the perspective of um, Marge being the antagonist uh, to the perspective of Jerry. Well, but because she comes in so late, you yeah. can't really call her the protagonist of the film. If she is, it's it's it seems awfully late to be introducing the protagonist to me. You know, so, I wonder. I wonder if it would, uh, if we didn't look at it from a matter of time, but in, uh, of of uh, sort of time code, right, a linear time in the film, but or but rather screen time in the film. I wonder uh, how that stacks up. I wonder if I we get I, more of him on stay on screen or more of her. I would, I would guess that it's comparable. I mean, it seems yeah. like there's, and that's that's how I look at it. Quite a bit of both, yeah. Because it feels like two stories that are kind of going on at the same time, and we see the first half of of this story uh, in the first half hour, and then we get a lot of her story, and then we get the the resolution. Right? They sort of they they cut back and forth, but uh, for the most part, we. Once the story becomes Marge's story, we get a we we see it through to the end. Yeah, um, and that's and that's you know that's me looking at it in kind of modern screenwriting. Well, and that's what uh, I was going to ask terms. you. And I, you know, I cannot imagine that the Coens sit down and map it out like that. Yeah, and going oh, well, this he'll be the protagonist, but he's the he's really the bad guy. And so but, the but there's a, <laughs> there's a better know, question I, though. And for you as somebody who teaches screenwriting, if somebody turned in this, if you'd never seen Fargo, and somebody turned this in, uh, what would your guidance be? Looking at this script cold, I, I don't think I would have any problem with it. I, I I don't think there's a problem with having your protagonist be a bad guy and having your antagonist be a good guy. There's no reason that you can't swap those roles. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see it plenty of times. I mean, um, falling down is another oh, yeah, example yeah. where you've got this you know this horrific character that you're watching through the course of the film and you're rooting for the cop to stop him because. He's just, he's such a, this, our protagonist, uh, Michael Douglas's character, is trying to, as I recall, he's trying to get back home so he can kill his ex-wife or something like that. Right. And so you're rooting for uh, Robert Duvall's character to to get him and stop him before he does. But Michael Douglas is the character who's guiding the story. He, therefore, is the protagonist of the story. Hmm. So it, it can be done. I think it's a really fascinating way to tell a story. It's not a normal Hollywood way to tell a story, I don't right, think. Right, because Hollywood would have introduced Marge in uh, you know much earlier. They would have said the we've, got to, we've got to get her in in yeah. the first act. We've got yeah. to get her, you know, right away. Yeah. And and that may have been the only thing that they would have had to change in this film to make it a Hollywood film is to uh you know, is to just just uh intercut more of her story of discovery earlier on, more painting. Yeah. Right, you right. Know. I don't know what else she'd be doing. Right, exactly. There's a lot of wandering around with night crawlers. Exactly. Um, that's really that's a really interesting way to do it. You know, we've talked a lot about. Uh, well, we haven't talked a lot on the show, but we've talked a lot about the the um, uh, you and I about Breaking Bad and my newfound love for Breaking Bad. And uh, yes. I am, uh, you know, I am discovering what uh, I think uh, Vince Gilligan was doing, and that's how that's the lens through which I was looking at, at Fargo, which is this idea that we have a uh, sweet and noble uh, character, a protagonist, who is, over the course of uh, events and over the course of an hour and however many minutes, uh, turned bad. 
Right. Uh, and and we end up, you know, rooting for somebody else. And we're still in, in this context, we're still sort of rooting for William H. Macy uh, because he is a guy who has just stepped on everywhere he turns. And he got himself yeah. into trouble. But he's, you know, particularly in the context of his relationship with, uh, you know, with his father-in-law, with Herb Presnell, um, you know, there is this sense that he is, we know he's a maggot, but in some case, we we just, gosh, wouldn't it have been nice if things had worked out? (laughs) Yeah. You know, the, the thing about it, though, is like, Right from the start, he wants to have his wife kidnapped. It's I, I'm still hard pressed to say, yay! <laughs> I really go, love his character, H. Macy. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I have a hard time with that. It's, I mean, he's just, oh God, you know, it's funny watching it this time. I'm like, okay, so, so Harv gets shot, his wife gets axed. He gets caught by the cops and likely uh, because I, his father-in-law is in his trunk and he's the perpetrator of this entire crime, he's probably <laughs> hung or, or at least, you know, yeah. put on death row. But that's what I mean. By poor, the end, he's the bad Scotty, guy. Poor Scotty <laughs> is left familyless by the time of this film. And it, I, I was just thinking yeah. about that. It's like this kid who, I mean, we don't like that much. He's not that He's not. He's an interesting character. I mean, he's got White Snake, hockey, accordion king posters on his wall. He's kind of an odd duck. But this kid, over the course of this week or however long it is, loses his mom and his grandfather, and his dad is the one who did it all. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. I, yes. I no. I totally agree. And and that was, I think, one of the best moments in the film. When the assistant, his father-in-law's assistant, yeah. says, you know, how's, how's Scotty? And there's this look of realization yeah. on Jerry's face when he realizes, and, and I, I, this is my reading of it, when he realizes that he hadn't thought about Scotty in this whole plan. And Scotty's like sitting alone. He gets home and wonders where his mom is. That is, uh, I, I had the exact same reading. So it's just, it's horrible. I mean... I, I appreciate William H. Macy in this role. I love him because yeah. he's he does this, just this boob so well. I mean, he is such a, just a, an idiotic cad. He really is. And I don't know why he really needs this money. I don't know what sort of trouble he's gotten, these, these land schemes or whatever he's doing. Terrible, terrible idiot guy. And, Man, just like that scene when he just realizes, oh, yeah, I haven't even thought once about my son in this whole thing. Yeah, it's, just, it's brilliant. Uh, it's he, brilliant. I mean, he, he deserved an Oscar nomination for this role. He was really amazing in it. Absolutely. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, we, we talk a lot about the protagonist antagonist, uh, argument here, but, uh, this is, I think more than certainly at the time, more than any other film that the, that the Coens had done really, uh, you know, as they call it an ensemble piece, if you're, if you're going to label it as such, right. uh, we, we don't get the sense that we are really following any one character. It's, it's, uh, we are following the story. Uh, more than any other, and I think that's uh, I, I think that's interesting coming off of films like uh, you know Barton Fink in particular, which was absolutely a um, you know a, a, an actor's film. But in a way, all of them, uh, maybe maybe not Blood Simple so much, but all of them so much have really been you could almost say novelistic films. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, 
but still, you know, I mean, in, in Miller's Crossing, we're we're following the the story of a single character. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay. Even but, yeah. even as a, an epic gangster flick, I mean, that's it. There just, are a lot of people in it, but we're focused on. It feels that one feels that one feels so talky though. It feels like it could have been like an LA Confidential yes. novel. So dense. Yeah, I could see a much longer novel that they worked to condense into that two yeah, hours. Yeah, I can see that. I can see yeah. that. Uh, okay. Where uh, we, I, are you ready to? We, should we talk about uh, uh, any more cast members that you're really well, excited about? I, I, I you know, just a quick note about Harv Presnell, who yeah. I just love in this film so oh, much. Oh, he's fantastic. He had taken a major hiatus from film from like the late 60s, early 70s until this time. And I'm not sure exactly why. I think he just wanted to step back. He's a guy who's been in uh, theater and film and all that. But like back in the late 60s, he was in Paint Your Wagon. And other than I think a small role in in 76's Bloodbath, I don't think he had been in anything uh, other than, well, some TV, but no other feature films until 96. So it's interesting that he had stepped away for so long. And uh, I'm glad and, that he yeah, came Yeah, and back. then in 96, he did everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> he did he a lot of stuff. He was in The Whole Wide World, Fargo, Larger Than Life, The Chamber, the TV show Nash Bridges, Easy Street, Star Trek Voyager, The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest. <laughs> he had a very busy 96, yeah. So when he jumped back in... Man, he, he came really in, yeah, in a hurry. Yeah. Uh, did a lot of TV um, for fans of Dawson's Creek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, he was uh, he was all over the place. And one of my uh, one of my favorite short run films, uh, Andy Barker P.I., or not films, TV shows. That was too bad. He was in that for a long time. Uh, yeah. So we like so, uh, we like him. He plays that. He's he's just that uh, the voice you could never uh, you, you can't miss him. No, he's just fantastic. Yeah. The um, uh, let's see what the else. The unsinkable Molly Brown, man. That's that. That was he. Just there are some wonderful stage pictures or, or uh, stills from the unsinkable Molly Brown of him as a young man, and uh, it's really a stunning transformation. Uh, yeah, that, it, what age has done to this guy. It's like it's a, and that's yeah. I mean that's what I really remember him for from that film because I saw that movie so many times when I was a kid, and uh, that character I it just it's indelible that you know it's uh, it just in, it's in my head his yeah. his character in that film and so it's great to continue seeing him as he as he continued his career later in life so I'm glad he did Let's talk even about though he's, he's uh, passed away since. Uh, let's talk about Steve Buscemi and uh, Peter Stormare. Yeah, two fantastic character actors who, um, <laughs> they're just great. I guess they, they wrote this role for Buscemi, who had been in, I think, the previous three films, uh, Miller's Crossing and, uh, let's see, what was he in before? Uh, Miller's Crossing, or is this the third film that he was in for them? Because um, he was in The Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah. And I don't think he was in anything before Miller's Crossing. He wasn't in Raising Arizona. Oh, and Barton Fink. Yeah, Barton Fink. So it was three. Yep. Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, and uh, the Hudsucker Proxy. And they wanted to give him a bigger role, and they they thought that this would be a fun one. And so uh, he's 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 great. This is a fantastic pairing. And, you know, we talked about uh, uh, Peter uh, Stormare and how 
he was supposed to be in Miller's Crossing, and uh, but because he was um, in a theater production of Hamlet as Hamlet, he couldn't get out of that. He lost that part, and they ran into him because I guess uh, his wife was in another play with him, and they said, you know, we'd love you to be in this other one if you can find the time. And he said, no, I'd love to do it. And so he looked at the script. I'm sure script they said and, it like that, all sarcastic. Yeah, if you yeah. can find the time. Exactly. Well, that's how he <laughs> describes their interaction. He thought it was pretty funny. But he said he got the script, and he said that they want you to play, uh, you know, Gerard uh, Grimsrud. And he looked at the script, and he's just like, I, there's hardly any lines. And then, you know, then he kind of got into it, and he realized how fun it would be. And, and so it's they're a really fantastic pairing. They work so well. Whether it's, you know, the little scenes with them uh, driving in their car, talking about Pancake's house, or you know, having the little, uh, having the, the <laughs> prostitutes come over to their, their hotel room, or whatever it is. They are a great pair because of the, just this, this tension between them all the time. I, I, sh- I want to add sort of, uh, almost parenthetically, uh, the interview between Marge and the Hookers played by uh, Larissa Kokernot and Melissa Peterman, is, is a real highlight for me in this film. Absolutely. Uh, over and over and over again, repeating, he was funny looking, he was funny looking. Oh, no, nothing really other than he was funny looking. He wasn't circumcised. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, was he then? <laughs> and, uh, and those two... Um, were actually from the area, I guess. And so those are their real accents. Those are not fake accents. That's how they, those two really speak. Oh, it's, it, that was it's like a so whole funny. other beautiful language. Really. It, it really is. It's a, it, it is, you know, it's, a, it's very, you feel happier just hearing it. Yeah. It's a language of happiness. This is what really happy people sound like. Yeah. <laughs> Ah uh, yes, you know who the body is who gets shot and the bloody body on the on the snow that's on that poster. Who is that? If you watch the credits, the person's name when it comes up looks like that symbol <laughs> that Prince had. Yes, the Ankh. Yes, it's that crazy little symbol. It's actually J. Todd Anderson, who is the storyboard artist who has been working with these guys since Raising Arizona. <laughs> they wanted him to be this guy who got who got plugged. So That's uh, funny. Yeah, he's he's popped up in a few other films. I think this is their only film that he's done. Um, but he's uh, I mean, their only film that he's acted in, I should say. But uh, he has been storyboarding for them. And then from them, he's ended up uh, he met Barry Sonnenfeld. He did Sonnenfeld's films. Uh, you know, he met through them George Clooney. He did George Clooney's storyboards. This is a guy who's been around for a long time doing a lot of storyboard right. stuff. So. Yeah, oh, look, he's done Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Uh, as Lou and Davis. He yeah. just did their most recent one. Yeah. I can't wait to see that movie. I don't think you're as excited about it as I am. I, I'm not, but I uh, uh, I still want to see it desperately, So, right. even though I'm not excited about it. But desperate, not excited. I, I'm desperate. Just desperate. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, well, back, okay. To, back to this. Okay. Film, yeah. yeah, one more person that I want to talk I don't know if there's anyone else you want to talk about, but the one other person that I really want to talk about is Steve Park, who plays Mike Yamagita. Because, yes. And I don't want to just talk about him, but I want to talk about the whole Mike Yamagita part of the film. I do too, I, because that, that uh, sets me sideways every time I see it. 
it, it, exactly. And I, I finally have uh, figured it out with, albeit with a little internet help, but I, I, I have it. I have it now. <laughs> but anyway, Steve Park plays Mike Yamagita. He's an interesting actor who has been around for quite a while since the uh, since I think Do the Right Thing is where he started as the uh, as the uh, yeah. Korean restaurant owner, and uh, he has uh, been in a lot of things, uh, some less uh, stereotypical and some more stereotypical. Actually, Falling Down. He was also in Falling Down. Oddly enough, we were just talking about that. Right, right. But um, his role in Fargo, I think, is really great. After Fargo, he ended up kind of, uh, I think he got a role on Friends that he was really, um, he felt really unhappy with the way he was treated. And he went on to write a mission statement in the spirit of Jerry Maguire to the Hollywood community uh, about the, uh, really just how, how Hollywood still stereotypes Asian American actors so much. And it's an interesting missive. It's, it's, uh. I, I, you know, I feel for for him. It's it's uh, an interesting piece of work, and I hope that it's something that he was able to get more work, you know, once he put it out there to the world and stuff. But um, it's it's worth reading and just looking at. And uh, um, I don't know, I don't know if it's really changed things that much, unfortunately. But it is interesting. That is uh, that is actually that's very interesting. And you, I'm just sort of looking at the other roles that he is uh, he's played, and they're all. Well, they're yeah. all, you know, most of them are sadly stereotypical. Well, and, you know, he said, you know, at the beginning, you know, I was, I was, I always feel like I'm playing some, some, you know, Asian restaurant owner or something like that. And, and he got, you know, his, his words about the people on set of uh, Friends, you know, he just was not very, he did not have a good experience there. Yeah. So That's it's, uh, it's, it's rough. So, but anyway, he's great in this film. He's also in A Serious Man. He's great there. Well, and yeah, go ahead. Oh, and, and, yeah. and then I was going to jump into Mike Yamakita. Yeah, I, that's what I was hoping you were going to do. Let's talk about what his, why, how he's introduced, and where we, what his role is in this film. It's a really strange role that it comes. I mean, he first calls her late at night after he's seen her on the news and, uh, in relation to this whole crime, and kind of connects. And then when she goes down to the Twin Cities, she ends up meeting him for a drink they they meet in the bar and or the restaurant at the radisson because it's a nice place and uh (laughs) proceeds to kind of tell him about how he lost his wife and he's having his he's just having a really rough time and (laughs) breaks down right there and it's it's such an amazing scene that i'm always fascinated with because it strikes me as such a beautifully written character moment and then you find out later in the film when she's talking to her friend and how you know she got together with mike yamagita and that she couldn't believe that uh whoever it was that he'd been marrying to had, had died and her friend is like oh no she's not dead she's still alive and yeah you should give her a call she'd love to see you and yeah mike you know he had psychological problems and he were he moved back in with his parents and all this stuff and so it really throws things, it throws you for a loop that all of that, that whole breakdown and everything was completely false. Now, and that's that I'm now. So punchline is you actually know what the, you, you've researched this. You know what the intent was. Well, so I still don't get it. And it, because, yeah, it's I've a never, real problem I, for me. Yeah, I've never understood it. And so I, I was reading around on the Internet and, there, you know, a few people have some theories. But the one that was predominantly popping up, which I think 
really makes sense is the whole Mike Yamagita scene shows how Marge is really trusting in people and she buys the story and she feels for him and she she totally, you know, goes right along with the whole thing. And, and really, there's no reason she shouldn't. It's not like there's any moments of, of falsity in there at all. But she buys into it. She doesn't ever question it. And it's not until her friend tells her that later, as she's getting ready to leave, she's already gone and interviewed Jerry at the car dealership and talked to him. Now she's getting ready to leave. Uh, no new leads. She's packing her stuff. She's talking to her friend. And then she finds this about Mike that he had basically been lying and this whole thing was this false story that he was telling and it it's immediately after that we see her as she's getting some food and then she's driving and she's thinking and and because of that moment with Mike that basically got her thinking about people who are basically telling false stories um, it made her think about Jerry Lundegaard, and, or, or at least you know she wanted to investigate it a little more, that maybe there's more going on at that car dealership than she had originally um, um, found out. And so now she wanted to dig a little deeper just to see if there were some untruths there. And so that's what makes her, that triggers that in her head, and that's what makes her turn around and go back to the dealership. Huh. Does that change your opinion of Mike Yamagita's character? I mean, Mike Yamagita's character, uh, it doesn't change my opinion of him at all. I still love the character. I love those scenes in the movie. Well, yeah, I, I should restate. Does it change your, your opinion of, of the utility of that role in the film? I, you know, it's a Coen Brothers film. I don't think I do. <laughs> I think I give that to them because yeah. it does... It does, like, when I think about it, I'm like, you know, that's a really interesting way to have her make that realization. And, sure, I've never really understood it, and I can see it now that I was uh, reading what some other people were saying on the Internet. Um, it, it kind of clicks for me now, but I liked that it wasn't something that was obvious, that it was an element of the film that I really liked, but I never really understood. That is a moment that, again, going back to Hollywood, saying, hey, you need to introduce uh, Marge Gunderson up in your first act. You need to put her right away. They would probably also have said, and what is going on with Mike Yamagita? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have any place in this film. Cut it out. And you'd be losing a really interesting character moment in the story that, sure, you could probably cut all of those three scenes out. And you probably wouldn't lose that much, but by having it in there, it just adds a little bit extra meat that once you kind of, you know, bite into it and you really latch onto it, it's really tasty. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Riding that one all the way to the I, ground, I was, aren't you? I was, yeah. I was. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I think serving. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Love me some Yanagita! <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I'm I think I'm torn a little bit on it because I I absolutely see what you're saying and uh, you know I I, I think that they make an awfully big deal of this particular MacGuffin, which is you know because they start it with a uh, with a late night phone call. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like they the late night phone call is the gun on the mantelpiece, and. As it turns out, what we what we earn, the little trinket that we earn out of those three scenes, ends up not um, having a you know not equating to the gun going off in Act Three, right? It's not, it's like not a big enough um, 
earn for the weight that they put on that character. And so this is this is me. This is my popcorn movie, um, you know, jacket on, which is there are other efficient ways to get this point across without having that character in the film at all. But I, you know, to to your to your point, I think it adds it adds it certainly adds texture. Uh, in in a a point in the film where we need texture, yeah, you know, because without it, I mean, it it just sort of jumps, kind of awkwardly, from the Twin Cities back to Brainerd without you know we don't we we don't learn a whole lot, yeah. um, but you know I so I I think I'm a little torn. I I need to see it again with that um, with that eye. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth. Uh, I mean, I I. I've always loved it just because I find it such a strange moment, even though I've never really gotten it. Mm-hmm. And and now that I have that, I mean, you know, maybe when I'm watching it again, I'm going to go, you know, I, I can see Pete's point. It's It still is not 100% satisfying, but I, I don't know. Just the way that I think that they're using that uh, character to introduce that uh, change in Marge's head, I think it. Uh, I, I think I like it. Well, the problem that I have with that is that I feel like her character is uh, is is so strong. I mean, what what we've what we learn from her is that she is a really a phenomenal uh, investigator, and and that's one of the things that gives us such an interesting and already textural con uh, context shock that she is this seven month pregnant uh, woman in the middle of the you know essentially the arctic and she is a phenomenal uh policewoman yeah you know what i'm saying so i almost feel like what we get out of the mic bits uh, detracts from the fact that she's already that, that we've we're establishing how good she is uh, and and I like that you know we we obviously I mean it's good to see characters with with these these foibles but I think the foibles are already set up in spades, uh, the environment uh, uh, notwithstanding you know her her pregnancy her ability to work uh, is already challenge enough to have her second guessing her own style it's just not big enough to me. Hmm. I can see that I could also say you know she's a great uh, police officer she's able to. No, you know, figure out the DLR on the the mm-hmm. license plate and all that sort of stuff. But the detecting and 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 the way that the reading, the honesty of people. I mean, maybe she's not that level, and this kind of pushes her to that level. Yeah, yeah, okay. I can see it both ways. Yeah. All right. I'm kind of liking it right now. So you you're know, good. I'm, no, I'm, that's I'm good. Gonna, I like that you're. I'm going to ride my Yamagita wave. Ride it all the way to the ground. That's that's, that's right. That's yeah. right. All right. Uh, anybody else you want to talk about specifically on the cast before we move into production? Um, I don't think so. I think we've covered all of them. So you might have heard all the Cohen the, the Cohen brothers did this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Next. <laughs> uh, this is uh, you know, this is another one, another Roger Deakins film. Uh, this is his his. Third with them. Yes, he's he's uh, damn near Stink. an expert. He and then he has been just working, working, working with them. I mean, I I don't think he did their latest film. No, he didn't. But he's he's worked with them up through True Grit. Yeah, I, I wonder why he didn't do, um, uh, Lou and Davis. I, I haven't know. heard Should anything. Start a rumor? But that's, mm. Yes, yes. Yeah. 
we'll big fight big fight big, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, anything stand out uh, to you the, regarding the cinematography yeah. of this film this film uh, you know Roger Deakins talked about it the camera work in this film because of this quote unquote true story feel that they wanted to have in this film they he, you know they purposefully decided together him and the and Joel and Ethan decided that they wanted the camera work to be much more restrained than it had been in in their previous two films which um you know, we talked about Barton Fink. I mean, it had a lot of really interesting shots, like the the move across the room into the sink and down the drain pipe, mm-hmm. and just all those really interesting shots in, in in that film. And then Hudsucker Proxy is just you know cameras kind of all over the place. This is very restrained. There's not a lot of camera movement. Um, the the way that the camera is positioned is much less in characters' faces, much more set back. You'll see a lot more uh, instead of when when you're on a character's single instead of just a single with just them in the shot, it's a little farther back so you get the shoulder of the other person. So you're, you're stepped right. back a little bit from things. They really wanted to keep it that way all the way through. They also really wanted to focus on the white and black. And so obviously you have this stark white snow. And then at night, instead of kind of having kind of the bluish night tones that you see so often in films where you've got kind of that moonlight everywhere, they just went for black where it was like when it was black outside, I mean, it was black and you couldn't see anything other than what you could see with the car's headlights. And so that was a really nice uh, contrast between the kind of the two worlds that we have going on here. And then they really, uh, and then windows, they really wanted to emphasize windows where you had a lot of background or a lot of people sitting in positions where they had windows behind them. And you see highways or roads with just lots of cars just going back and forth on these roads. And they really wanted, I'm not really sure what it was that they were specifically wanting, but it just seems like life just keeps on going is kind of what it seems. And you never know who's driving along that road. It could be an innocent little cop from the country, or it could be some crazy killers in a car uh, coming to kidnap somebody. And it's just life keeps going, and you don't really have any idea who's out there. And kind of going back to the whole Yamagita thing, you know, you just, you're kind of trusting that, uh, or you're acknowledging, or you, in your own head, you're kind of believing that the people out there on the roads are all good people. But you know, you're not really thinking about how, you know, some of them could be these crazy killers and stuff. So that was an interesting thing. And then I also liked the use of blinds, particularly with Jerry Lundegaard, when he's in his office and how they would often shoot him. Uh, he had one of those glassed-in offices where the, he had you know, windows looking out into the showroom. He was a car salesman. And you have those blinds, and you shoot from inside the, the showroom looking through the blinds at him. And so he always had these these vertical bars around him. So he always looked like he was in prison. And I just love that. <laughs> that's a nice, uh, that's a nice pickup. I, I didn't, I, I didn't read that, uh, read into that. Uh, but I think that's really, that is very astute. Yeah. It's, it really, it's just so fun to see that he's just, he's always trapped. I mean, yeah. he, he really is. Oh, he is trapped. And, and the, the sense that everybody knows, Everybody can read him. Not only that's what I love about the the just sort of visual metaphor of the the glassed in office is that uh, he cannot uh, he just can't get a sense of of privacy enough to actually make this thing work. Everybody's always watching him and always knows what he is doing. Yeah, uh, and always in a sense, sort of one step, just one 
half step behind uh, his latest and greatest scheme. And, uh, you know, the, speaking to that, I think one shot that really exemplifies that is after he is trying to pitch this idea of this land sale and the $750,000 that he needs from uh, his father-in-law and his father-in-law's accountant, he, they, they basically, you know, in a way, basically cut him out of the deal without even giving him the finder's fee that they initially thought they were yeah. going to have to give him. It's this horrible situation. And you get this shot of him after he's just defeated as he's walking through this completely barren parking lot covered in snow with just his car. And it's a wide shot and it just is empty. But it's also, interestingly, from up high, almost as if they're looking out the windows at him. So you get this sense that everybody knows what he's doing, but at the same time, he's completely alone in this world. That was exactly my uh, my uh, that, what I was going to... Uh, the scene I was going to talk about, the second one, is after he gets off the phone, I think the second time he uh, is uh, the, he, he realizes he's being tracked down by the GMAC uh, financier, uh, and is is told that you know if he doesn't produce these VIN numbers, he's going to be um, you know he's going to be reported to the legal department. And we get this shot where they we we pull back on the office from an exterior of his glassed-in office, and he picks up his he picks up his uh, you know his desk blotter pad and he just slams it on the desk four or five times and realize everybody is watching this irate. Uh, kind of uh, explosion of <laughs> rage, uh, but he can't keep it in anymore, and he just he he it it no longer matters that that he is um, he's lost all composure, yeah. uh, because he never he he never has a chance to do that in private, right? Somebody's always coming, or on the other end of the phone, or just waiting for him to do something to screw up. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful, yeah. Very, very beautifully shot and staged, all of that. Carter Burwell, the music. I you know, love the opening theme. Let me it, just get it, that out. It's a great theme. And, you know, I've. it's, it's interesting because this is a film that I, I kind of always felt like, you know, he gets nominated for for Oscars on, uh, like, Burn After Reading, which I really didn't care for the music in that. It's like, gosh, you know, his music in Fargo, his music in Miller's Crossing, those are all so much better. Why didn't he get nominations back then? But uh, what are you going to do? It's great music. I guess that that theme is, or the musical motif is based off of a Norwegian folk song called The Lost Sheep, which I didn't know. I did not know that either, Lost Sheep. I'll have to see if I have that in my iTunes collection. I, I know. I'm going to have to... What I love so much about that that opening sequence, I think the music plays a a wonderful character in the opening of this film. You know, a for setting the tone of the film, but but uh, just the voice of the film. Uh, it starts out this this wonderful kind of uh, very uh, light uh, motif. Uh, you know, this 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 very sort of high light version is kind of it feels like a fairy tale. It definitely it it, it we start on that sort of fable. Um, and it builds to this incredible intensity. It builds to like Braveheart intensity, and you expect to see uh, an army of Norsemen come across the tundra, and <laughs> it never visually never pays off that way. It it it's always this just uh, these long shots of the cars driving across of the car driving across the the barren white snowy landscape, but the music is just so rich and vibrant it it's it, to me it sets up that the the sort of comic 
um, uh, kind of visual construct of the film that uh, I find myself laughing already, and I haven't even met any of the primary characters yet. <laughs> it, you know, you're right. It does have that that you could put this in a in a Viking film as they yes as their ships come through the fog and they right. land on the shore and you right. to see them in their their horned helmets and their uh, fur. Whatever happens next, <laughs> somebody's carrying an axe. You that's know, right. I mean, that's that's, right. uh, that's it. Which I think is it. it then that, that feeling totally exactly it totally pays off. A in the repeated uh, visuals of Paul Bunyan and Brainerd, but B in the way Stormare ends up killing Buscemi right. uh, with an axe and yep. uh, you know chipper. <laughs> well, I don't think the chipper kills him. The axe and chipper combo. <laughs> It's the axe that kills him, and the chipper just <laughs> disposes of him. That was not not a good way to go. It really isn't. It uh, really, really isn't. You know, and the, the thing that I love about it is if he had just paid him for that car, yeah, he probably would have made off with near a million dollars. Yep. But no, he hates this guy so much that he just has to go off on him and say, there's no way in hell I'm going to pay. I got shot in the face. (laughs) Yeah, there's no way I'm paying for your half of the car. It's mine. And the money is gone. Yeah. You know, this is a a sad truth about the the little lie that they told about this. um, It being a true story. Apparently, there was a woman from Japan who was convinced that the, that this money was really buried out somewhere or sitting you know somewhere off of the highway one of the highways in in Minnesota or North Dakota and she came over from Tokyo and was searching and searching and searching trying to find that briefcase of money because she believed that it was true and she ended up getting so distraught apparently or something like that that she ended up committing suicide no. Yeah. That's a horrible story. Is that true? That's according to the newspaper article I saw, yes. That's a horrible story. Are you sure I that know. wasn't set up? I, I can't imagine they would set up a horrible story like that. That's a horrible story. I know. Oh, well. This movie won a lot of awards, or certainly uh, performed well. It was it, yeah. It it did really well. This was a kind of a, a year where a lot of indie films made it big at the Oscars. I think uh, this was the wasn't this the year that um, they were all independent outside Hollywood films except for uh, Jerry Maguire. Yeah, it was yeah. The English Patient, Fargo, Jerry Maguire, Secrets and Lies, and Shine. Right. The English Patient, of course, won. And uh, uh, but yeah, Jerry Maguire was the big. Hollywood film that year. So, you know, it was a good year for independent films. You know, Frances McDormand, her uh, her win uh, speech at the Oscars was all about that. You know, congr- you know congratulations to the, the studios that let filmmakers make their own casting decisions based on talent and skill rather mm-hmm. than box office uh, allure. Right. And, uh, you know, this was this was the year that that proved that can be done if it hasn't been repeated often. But yeah, it, it, it was a good year for it. It definitely um, was. She won. The Coen Brothers won for best original screenplay, uh, and that was it for wins. Right, and, but and it then, you know it also uh, it, it won best director for at Cannes. It won uh, best art direction at BAFTA. 
Yeah. It, it just it, it performed very very well uh, in the award circle, but it was also nominated for best picture, for best directing, for best supporting actor William H Macy, best cinematography. It did not win. Roger Deakins. What won for cinematography? Do you know that year? Uh, yes, it was. Shine. Wasn't it also the English patient? Was it the English let patient. Me, no, it would have been the English. Let me patient. let me yeah. check. Let me check. Uh, yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it won, uh, or it, it was nominated for a whole bunch of Golden Globes too. Didn't win uh, those either. Same uh, best motion picture, best director, best actress, best screenplay. Poor Roger Deakins has been nominated for ten Oscars now and has yet to win. Starting with The Shawshank Redemption '95, then Fargo, Kundun, O oh Brother Where Art Thou, The Man Who Wasn't There, No Country for Old Men, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. The Reader, True Grit, and then Skyfall, and he has yet to win. Well, that's really too bad. There's some great, great-looking films there. Right. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. That's just too bad. Uh, hopefully hopefully soon. Yeah. Or he'll be 110 years old. They'll be wheeling him out for one of those honorary things. <laughs> the admission of failure by the Academy. That's right. That's, that's that right. Uh, how'd the movie uh, do in the uh, budgetary arena? It did. It did well for itself. You know, this was, uh, I think, because of the awards buzz and because it was just really a film that con- that people connected with. Uh, it it cost seven million to make, and which adjusted is about ten point two million, and they spent making the or they they made let's see 24.6 million domestically and about 36 million internationally so all told adjusted they made about 88.5 million so they you know did pretty well for itself well and i think the i, I think the the word buzz the the word of mouth uh was sort of the the uh uh, the symptom of the the cleverness of this film and the the Minnesota conceit, right? The Minnesota nice and the the um, the uh, the fantasy element that is introduced by the accents and the characters in this, the, you, just the uniqueness of the characters in this uh, in this film make it one that was very easy to talk about. You know, I remember yeah. talking about it to others about how clever this film was and how interesting it was and how, how interesting it is. It's, it's to me, it's in that same category as brick, you know, where you take a, you, you sort of munge these genres together that are, that you just have not seen together. It's, you know, uh, and, the, and they do something really unique and interesting with it and makes it easy to talk about. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, so true. it did very well and it's, uh, it, it's, uh, for a lot of people, I think yeah. it'll be, you know, one of the, Coen, uh, a lot of people will say it's probably their favorite Coen brother film. It's just a film that's easy to enjoy. Uh, it's got great characters. It's got a great story. It's really interesting. It's not as quirky or artsy as some of their other films. So I, and because I think of the just all the status and the buzz that it got back when it came out, I think a lot of people just will continue calling this their favorite. Uh, where do you put it uh, among the the Coen Brothers films? Certainly the Coen Brothers films we've done so far, and we're going to rank it here. So, I uh, I absolutely love this film. I think of all of their films, I would probably still put No Country for Old Men on top, and then this below it maybe big lebowski depending on my mood but 
Oh no, no, maybe Raising Arizona, but uh, yeah, actually, I'd put Raising Arizona above this because I just that's uh, all a lot of nostalgia goes into that one too. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, it's way up in the top of the list. All right, I think we should rank this thing. Shall we do that? I have one more little thing to Excellent. say. Excellent, God, I knew it. <laughs> this was going to be the day. One. There's always one. Um, this is, and this is really short, but I thought it was so interesting in Barton Fink how that they completely lucked out when they had that pelican land, like dive bomb into the water in that <laughs> yes. very last shot of the film. I thought that was just so fascinating. Well, at the very beginning of this film, they also conveniently lucked out with the bird where as the, you know, we, we kind of open on the white and then we start seeing that there's actually a road and there's a car coming from the distance toward us. Well, a bird starts kind of flitting about and we see this bird and it kind of disappears over a hill and kind of lands in the road. And then all of a sudden it, it bursts off of the road and flies away as the car uh, comes over the rise and, and uh, comes toward it. And it's just a great little moment with the bird that, again, was completely accidental that they just happened to catch on film. <laughs> and Joel Cohen said, you know, we always had great luck with birds. And it's just, I, I don't, I'd have to watch the rest of their films to see if there was any other moments of birds. Because, you know, happened. he's thinking of like a dozen that we've never seen. I'm sure there up. are some other ones. Yeah. But um, but I absolutely love that. It's just this random accidental little moment where this bird just kind of flits across the screen, lands on the road. I mean, those are the sorts of things that make a shot yeah. and they've really lucked out. I think in the last two films that we've talked about, man, didn't even have to pay scale. <laughs> you can uh, find us, uh, at the next reel.com. I know when I say that, I actually mean, flickchart.com slash the next reel and you should join us over there and you should follow us and you should uh, participate in our rankings and see if your rankings agree with our rankings and uh, that's what we're going to do right now yeah are you ready i'm so ready all right we're going to first talk about uh fargo or moon totally i'm going fargo yeah okay I like Moon. Don't no, I, I know you do. I, I you feel say like, that I every like, week. I feel like every week Moon is the one that yeah. we pick up against, and I'm always picking not Moon. Uh, now, see, this is trickier: Fargo or The Night of the Hunter. Wow! Gosh, I feel like I'm gonna go with Fargo, which is, I feel like I'm betraying The Night of the Hunter I a little sort bit. I feel like you do are too. Yeah, that's your. That was your film. I, I love it. I really love it. I'm gonna. Do, I, I mean, I'm easily Fargo on this one. So. All right. Oh, somewhere out there, I've just lost some credibility with yeah. some. I know. <laughs> myself. All right, Fargo or the Thing. Oh man. <laughs> See, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna do the thing. On this so one. Tough. I, I'm gonna do the thing also. Yeah. That's just you know, hard to beat. Fargo or the Outlaw Josie Wales. I'm totally going Fargo. Outlaw Josie Wales. Really? Mm-hmm. Over Fargo. Why? Uh, I I feel like it is a larger uh, character arc. There is a, a higher uh, sort of, what is it, amplitude of uh, the drama in um, Josie Wales' uh, character. And I love from the opening sequence, that sort of voiceless uh, uh, opening sequence of him and his son plowing the field, uh, I think the, it is just such a powerful story uh, that I, I'm just moved by every time I see it. And this one is 
quaint and lovely, and I love talking about it, and it's no Outlaw Josie Wales for me. Wow. I know. Boom. Uh, see, they're, they're much more comparable for me. Um, I'll go Josie Wales because of that last moment with the, uh, you know, where he's dry firing. At oh, the yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's, yeah. That. that's a pretty amazing stuff. Fargo or the bank job? I got to go Fargo. Yeah. I, Come on. You uh, yeah, go. I don't know. I, gotta go I mean, bank job is great. But. Yeah, right. Fargo or World War Z? Fargo. World War Z is enjoyable, but Fargo is much more interesting things happening in Fargo. Yeah, I'm, I'll give you Fargo. But Fargo with zombies would be better. <laughs> <laughs> as long as the record, let the record note. Uh, they should have had that as the, <laughs> as the quote of the poster. Would have been better with zombies, says Pete Wright. Thanks, real. Oh, Rotten Tomatoes, here we come. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, that's right. Or, <laughs> Fargo or the killing. I mean, can you see the guy get up after he's shot? <laughs> he gets up. He's examining him out in the field and then and he, she, and he grabs her. That's a now that's a movie. I'm telling you. All right, what were we talking about? Well, yeah. <laughs> Fargo or or the killing. Oh. That's wow. A tough one. We're these are these are getting God, harder. This is right sometimes, man. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, sometimes it's a lot easier. This is this is a tricky one. I uh wow. Stanley Kubrick or the Coens. And uh, I uh, uh I'm gonna go Fargo on this one. Yeah, I think I am too. I'm a little I'm gonna go up. Fargo, and you know what I, why I'm gonna go I'm gonna go Fargo because of Shep Proudfoot. <laughs> we didn't talk at all about Chef Proudfoot's character, but I, I love Chef Proudfoot in this film, and I could watch, I you know you could cut out everything and just give me the quiet, calm Chef uh, Proudfoot fixing a car. Cut straight to the rage of Chef Proudfoot <laughs> as he beats the hell out of everyone, and uh, I would be a happy man. Oh man, good old Chef Proudfoot. Yeah. Well, they should make a spinoff film about Shep Proudfoot. They should. The should get it actually should be a sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's going to be a Fargo, Fargo TV. I know. We didn't talk about that. That's, that's a sad uh, thing. I don't know if it's worth talking about. <laughs> All right. So what's, uh, uh, so we're going to do, are you, are you in agreement? That's it. Uh, yeah, we went, I did. And, okay. and so we're 21. 21, 21 out of 107. Is that, uh, is that our strongest uh, Cohen? I believe so. Let me just kind of zip through here. Da, 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 da. Yes, it is. Strongest Cohen. Very nice. I love it. Well done. Where are we going next week? Well, we're continuing drama by the brothers Cohen with uh, No Country for Old Men. This and is our. We're, we're we finishing it. Yeah. That's it. That's the last one. We're finishing it next week. I know people are going to be upset about that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great Cohen we can talk about in the future. Yeah, all right. I'm excited about this. No Country for Old Men. I love it. It's my favorite of theirs. Is it really? Okay. Yeah. I'm excited to see if it is of mine too, of theirs too. Because there are some others we haven't talked about that I think are right up there. Interesting. Like? Well, I don't want to talk about it now. We're going to talk about oh, them later. Uh, all right. All right. Good night, Andy. Thank you.
I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>